Oregon Employment First, supporting people with intellectual and developmental disabilities to work in community jobs. Learn more at iWorkWeSucceed.org. Hello, and welcome to the Oregon Employment First podcast. I'm Angela Yeager, Communications Officer with Oregon Employment First. This podcast series is for everyone, really, but especially for people out in the field, the service coordinators, personal agents, to give you a little bit more information about Employment First and employment services in Oregon. We also welcome providers, families, and individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities to also enjoy this podcast series. So today, we are going to be talking about the history of Employment First in Oregon. Our guests are Lilia Tenety, Director of the Office of Developmental Disability Services, and Acacia McGuire-Anderson, Statewide Employment First Coordinator. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. So we're going to be talking about the history of Employment First in Oregon, and I think, Acacia, you wanted to start off? Sure. I feel like I'm getting really good at talking about the history of Employment First in Oregon, but Oregon technically became an employment first state in 2008, one of the very first states to, to do that. And what that really means is that as a state, the policy will promote people working in competitive integrated jobs. So jobs just like you or I or anybody else, and that we would prioritize that and also ensure that there are supports for people who want to go to work um, in the community. So in 2008, we joined on that movement, which is national. And then we also had a lawsuit that started in 2012, started locally with named plaintiffs and also uh, Disability Rights Oregon, and then expanded to include Centers for Public Representation and Federal Department of Justice. So because of that, and also because of the belief that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities can work in the community, we had a couple of executive orders, 1304 and then 1501, issued by Governor Kitzhopper at the time and continued by Governor Brown, that talk about the work that Oregon would do to ensure people could go to work. So that includes things like having new services, such as Discovery, which started in 2014 to help people explore work, um, implementing what's called a career development plan, which we'll talk about later in the podcast series, which is helping people discuss and explore what they'd like to do and work, and then several other pieces to really help promote employment in Oregon. That lawsuit was settled in 2015 slash 2016. It was really January of 2016. And now we have the Lane v. Brown settlement agreement. And so that really helps ensure that Oregon continues to do what it promised to do to ensure that we have ongoing supports for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities to work. So that's a little bit of the history, um, but I'm going to ask Lilia to add because she was actually part of the negotiations and the development of the policies as it went forward. Thanks, Acacia. You're taking me back in memory time. Um, I think one of the things that it's important to clarify or just make sure that everyone is aware of is that the settlement agreement in the Lane lawsuit really uh, picks up and drops into itself our uh, employment first executive orders. It essentially is just restating in many, many ways the exact same things that we committed to do uh, with those two executive orders. There's some added benchmarks that we need to meet, um, but in general, 
the work around uh, coordinating better between the Department of Education, vocational rehabilitation, and ODDS was embedded ultimately in that executive order and work had started on that. And then we picked that up as a settlement agreement. So um, I think from the standpoint of negotiating settlement agreements, we were fortunate in that we had the way forward. We had the plan that what we on what we needed to do. And frankly, we had already started in a big way to make those types of movements, including doing important things like closing the front doors to sheltered workshops. The front doors to sheltered workshops uh, were closed as of July 1st, 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, And that ultimately was called out uh, in the first executive order that that would be something that the state would be doing uh, at that then future date. Um, We've now obviously moved well past that. And um, frankly, uh, we were a little bit ahead of the curve uh, with the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services uh, released while we were working through discussions with uh, plaintiff's attorneys on lane agreement. Uh, home, new home and community-based settings regulations were passed at the federal level, which really also just uh, pushed states in the direction of ensuring that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities who want to have integrated jobs in the community uh, have the ability and the access to services uh, to do that. So I think all of these things headed us in that direction, and we continue to do the work uh, that lines us up both with our executive order, with the new, with the HCBS, Home and Community-Based Settings Federal Regulations, and then, of course, ultimately with our Lane v. Brown Settlement Agreement. So I'm hearing from both of you, you know, we have a lot of things aligning. We have federal regulations from Medicare. You have the Lane versus Brown lawsuit, all of these pointing towards community integrated employment. But beyond that, why else is employment first important? So I th- that's an excellent question. And I would say um, employment first is important for each person that ultimately wants to get a job and wants to have the resources available to help them do that and then ultimately just support them in the job. That's kind of like asking why is, it Im- why is employment important to each one of us, to me? Why is import- employment important to me? Um, I gain a great deal of pride from the work I do. Um, it's part of who I am, and that is not unique to me. That's usually how it is for everyone. And for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, they deserve uh, the right and the ability to go to work and feel like they're being a productive and helpful member of their community. Um, we have you know, families ultimately also involved, especially families for people who may be living at home. Um, it, it creates an environment where Uh, We have an expectation in a lot of ways that uh, people with intellectual and developmental disabilities can and should work in the community, and we're not treating them separately or differently um, because they have an intellectual or or developmental disability. So I think it's important for each person that's engaged in working. I think, obviously, it's also important for our um, businesses and communities and government agencies and others that hire people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Uh, we talk a lot about the importance of people with IDD being integrated and, and involved in their communities. Well, most of us spend a big portion of our day in life in the community at work. And if we're trying, truly trying to engage people in community life, not having them in the workplace um, is, is in some ways segregating them from the rest of what 
the community is involved in and what happens within a community. So um, I think it just it furthers the goals of ensuring that people with intellectual and developmental disabilities are welcomed and part of our overall communities. Yeah, I don't honestly have much to add. I think that's exactly right. We all have opportunities to make friends and gain a sense of self at work. And we want to ensure that everybody has that opportunity. I worked in the field when Employment First was first being talked about um, with an employment provider agency. And I think that there was just a lot of confusion about what Employment First meant and how that would change going forward. A lot of organizations said the best they could to take what was then an alternative to employment work location, if you want to call it work, and then they would try to sell something out of that location to say we're employment first because we're selling items. But unfortunately, due to the policy not being very clear at the time, it missed the the purpose, which was that really people would be integrating into their community. So working out in the community at a job like anybody else versus maybe bringing a job into what was then known as an alternative to employment and now is considered day support setting. And so when this policy started to change in 2012 and 2015 and continues to change, it really was challenging. But now that we've, as Lilia mentioned, closed the front door to sheltered workshops and seen, I mean, in the state of Oregon, we have uh, many, many people, over a thousand individuals working in community integrated employment, we start to see the benefit. We talk to employers. Angela, you've done a ton of that with the success stories and heard from them why having somebody with an intellectual or developmental disability in their workforce matters. We've been able to hire folks within the state using the state as a model employer program um, to help ensure that we've got people working with intellectual and developmental disabilities as part of our workforce. And we can see within our own office the difference it makes and how important it is to us. And so those policies really have gotten clarified as we've gone forward. And we're really seeing the benefits now that there's more of an understanding of what employment first really means and how as a state we actually need to implement that. And supported employment isn't new to Oregon. Oregon's been doing supported employment for a while. And one of the things we hear from families as well as providers who have been in this business for a while is What's different now? We we did supported employment in the 80s or whatever time frame they want to refer to, and it was great. But then, you know, some funding changes happened and it went away, or at least the supports for it at that same level went away. So what makes it different now? A lot of things, I think, make it different. One, you've got, as Lilia mentioned, all of the federal agencies pointing in the same direction, saying we're going this way. You have self-advocates at all different levels, the local level, the federal level, saying we this is a barrier being segregated in employment. We want to be in our communities. Um, but I think <clears throat> you've also got, I hope, policies that are clear on what employment first means and how we do that coordination between Office of Developmental Disability Services and Vocational Rehabilitation to help make that happen, as well as Department of Education. Um, we also hear a lot about funding and concern about the cost of this initiative. But one thing I've heard actually family members raise and also providers is that for individuals who have intellectual and developmental disabilities, if they qualify for developmental disability services, they will get supports and it's available both at home and at work. But we really want to make sure that if they want to go to work, they can have their support, 
those supports at work. So ultimately, the funding is there to support them in any setting. So why not ensure that they've also got them at work? So I think that there's a lot of changes that have happened. The last thing I'll mention, and then I'll let Lilia jump in, is I've actually seen a lot of people's ideas hearts, minds, whatever you want to call it, change. It was a big and scary change and it was challenging. It was challenging for individuals, for families. It's challenging for providers and we're not there yet. We still have some work to do, but I think as folks are starting to see people working in their communities, the idea that this is actually a positive is starting to happen. And that is going to go the longest way, in my opinion, to maintaining this change. I think those are really good points. And um, definitely, I think just in um, the few years I've been involved directly in, in with this initiative in Oregon, about four years now, the discussions that we have today um, with individuals and families, providers, and I will even say legislators, because I do, and ultimately as part of my role, talk to a lot of legislators about the work that we do, the discussions have shifted and changed. And um that's been a really good thing to observe. It's, it's no longer fighting. It's no, it's in a large way. It's no longer, why are you doing this? How can we, we're going to stop you. It's okay. We understand that this, this is important. We understand that this needs to be done. What we can we do to help? And, um, just, just that shift in the discussion, um, has been really important. And to be fair to Acacia's point, we still have, you know, it's not a hundred percent there yet. We still have some, uh, areas where that's not, exactly the feedback we get, but on the whole, we are definitely moving in, in that direction. And I'll address to some extent concerns around funding, uh, because when you have something that feels new like this, um, and there's a lot of money that goes into the effort, um, there's a sense that maybe, oh, that money is going to go away, like potentially has happened in the past with this or other things. And I think, um, in Oregon right now, in the way the DD service system is funded, there's definitely a lot of focus on the money being spent and, you know, what's happening. I will say, though, with that, um, the state has made a strong commitment not only to serve everybody with an intellectual or developmental disability, regardless of the type of service, days, you know, any, any number of in-home supports, employment supports, everything else, um, that I think at this point it would be, it would be, um, we're constantly in those discussions around budget, but the idea that somehow some big initiative that we've made a lot of progress on would suddenly in single-handedly in and of itself lose a bunch of funding, I think is we're past that point in these discussions. Um, we've got to be mindful of our budget. There are changes we're making in different ways to the ISP individual support plan process and other things. Um, but ultimately we know we've got a lot of people that are, have come into services over the course of the last few years that we will be, especially children, we will be supporting for the rest of their lives, um, through some sort of Medicaid funded program. And so we need, um, especially with kids that transition age youth, the idea of working. I mean, these are all critical points and critical things that we will, uh, continue to work toward. And I think our funding issues broadly overall um, will be something that will always be there. I'll, we'll always be thinking about, but we don't um, we don't change what we're doing today out of fear of what might happen tomorrow, ultimately. 
And Lilia makes a really good point <clears throat> because when you start to talk about employment at five and six, like they do now in schools, mm-hmm. and when you start to plan at 14, people graduate from high school with the belief that they're going to go to work. And then it's easier to wrap those supports around through vocational rehabilitation and developmental disability services. And the cost, actually, studies have shown goes down because there's earlier opportunity for work and work experience. So when you make a big push, like we're making now to make a big change, it takes a lot of upfront cost and it's an investment worthwhile. But then long term, ideally, you would see because there's earlier opportunities and additional funding streams, for lack of a better term, you've got education involved, VR involved, then typically you'll see a little bit less cost at the back end. So the next question is, um, how is Oregon a leader in the area of employment and employment first? Um, Oregon is considered a national leader in this movement, uh, which is exciting at one level. Um, Also, though, you know, creates challenges because there aren't a lot of other states that have gone or as far in their progress as we are. Um, Definitely, we can look to Washington, which is helpful. But their system is structured very differently than ours. Um, being a state that not only uh, is a leader in employment first and has taken the steps to make employment first um, a strong policy objective and goal for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities, also being a state that provides services to everyone uh, who meets eligibility, our eligibility criteria is just kind of an added layer to it because uh, the st- other states that have also engaged in this oftentimes have waiting lists um, with lots of people waiting for services. So even though the state might be employment first, not everybody's been in- benefiting from that because they're just waiting to get the DD-related services. Uh, and then, of course, you've got states as well that might have adopted an employment first initiative like Washington, but also still have lots of people served in large institutional settings. And people who live in institutional settings ultimately, um, in many ways, don't have the ability to access these kinds of services and support. So I think Oregon, this is another uh, area where, like Oregon, um, moved away from institutional residential services for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities in a lot of ways before many other states did it. I think this is another area where Oregon is um, a leader because we've moved in this direction before many other states had done that. And ultimately, we continue to move in that direction. And while we've been doing this, we've also then opened our services up to everyone who's eligible and, um, you know, done a lot of other things that that kind of combined with the Employment First Initiative uh, definitely put Oregon out front in the context of what states are doing around employment. And I know I experienced that when I go to conferences and events with other state leaders. And I know that that's something Acacia Um, As well, when we participate in events, we get asked a lot of questions about what we're doing and how we're doing it and and what's happening here because we are um, pretty much very well known for what we're doing. One thing I get asked a lot about, Angela, is the I Work We Succeed campaign, which I know we'll talk about later. But uh, as you mentioned before, Employment First is really about people. It's about people with intellectual and developmental disabilities going to work. And so I wonder if you could share part of a recent success story or interview you've done with somebody who's actually gone to work. Sure. Yeah. And we have uh, at this point, I think more than 65 success stories on our website, iworkwesucceed.org. So there's lots to choose from. But I think um, related to this conversation we've just had and why it's important to work, uh, 
I was out in Baker City recently and interviewed a young man, his first job in the community out of his transition program uh, working, and his mother showed up for the interview, and she used to be a service coordinator, and uh, um, she's no longer in that role, but it was very meaningful for her um, as a single mother who, um, you know, is working really hard day to day in her own job as well as, um, you know, supporting her children. And she became very tearful talking about her son and what how meaningful it is to her now that they sit around the dinner table and he talks about his day and his job while she's also talking about her day and her job and what how meaningful that is to her. And I think, um, you know, those kinds of stories, I think the fact that he is someone, you know, who maybe years ago would have been thought to, you know, really struggle at work. And now he's found a niche for himself and it's it changed him a lot. She said he's opened up and become more independent in other things. He used to not use his cell phone to call her. Now he does. And, and so working, it, it goes beyond the actual job. It, it changes the person in their day-to-day life. And I hear that over and over and over again as I go around the state is that this has far-reaching consequences way outside of work and positive consequences terms of, you know, giving people, you know, confidence and just a self, a, a new feeling of self-worth that, you know, it impacts every aspect of their life. So I think that's why we do the stories to show people that and to tell those people's stories. So I think, um, and I think that's the, you know, when we talk about why is employment first at the end of the day beyond policies or regulations, it's also about people. So. Absolutely. So still got a ways to go. Yes. There's more work to be done. Um, but thank you, Lilia and Acacia, for joining us for the Oregon Employment First podcast. And this is our first one, but you'll be hearing more from us very soon. So thank you for joining us. Oregon Employment First, supporting people with intellectual and developmental disabilities to work in community jobs. Learn more at iWorkWeSucceed.org.